Okay, Corinthians then. Let's have a look at that together. Uh, First letter to the Corinthians. And chapter 11. I want to speak just for a few moments this morning on the Lord's Supper. And as it comes up in 1 Corinthians. So, chapter 11 and verse 17. And I'm reading from the NIV. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that you have come together as a church and there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received, and these are well-known verses that we often maybe will read at communion. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this In remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you judged But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further direction. So the Lord's Supper, and that's our theme, and that's what we're going to look at for the next few moments this morning. A little bit of background, first of all, uh, uh, looking at what it was like to have a meal in the East. Then um, we spend a little bit of time just briefly in the background to this supper, which is what's called the Passover. And then we'll look at the text as it's written, the letter as it's written, look at some practical meaning for today, and then conclude with an application. What are we going to do? What can I do What about this as we look at this together? So in the East, you know, um, to have a meal, I mean, Christianity, our faith, is, is birthed out of the East, the Middle East. Jesus was born and bred within the East, and it's come from an Eastern culture, a Middle Eastern culture. And in the East, a meal was a major, major event. To have a meal in the East 
would have been everything. It was almost like a sacred event, even if you can't really, I suppose, um, differentiate between religion and life, the secular and the religious. It couldn't be differentiated. It was a meal would almost be sacred. There was something about eating together in the East. The East, to, to eat was to be together. It was about community. In the East, you didn't eat alone. You wouldn't go up to your room and um, put on the football and someone else sit in another room and uh, uh, balance on their, a lap um, their microwaved meal and eat, and, and eat it and, and then somebody be in another place. In, in the East, um, you got together. A bit like... Cast your mind back in the days in our country, and probably still does happen today, Sunday roast. The family, everyone got together. It was about the one day of the week. And in my upbringing, in my family, my family, our, you know, our Sunday dinner was where we all sat down together. And still in our family, it's, we do as much as we can, try and eat and be together. And particularly on Sundays, our meal together at the table. So, but in the East, it was cultural. It was really important to Family, community. And so family, community, togetherness. This is something in the East you didn't eat alone. It was just unheard of to be eating alone. It, it was you wanted to be with others. In actual fact, in the East, it was understood if it's, you, you had room always for strangers, for someone to come by. You notice in the, in the story in Genesis where Abraham is sitting and he sees some strangers. Now we know in retrospect they were angels. But to him he didn't realize who they were. And he said, come to my tent. And that was great for Sarah, wasn't it? Yeah, there she was having to make all this stuff at the last minute. Great idea from the husband to come and, oh yeah, come on, have a bite to eat. But in the East that was very cultural. In the East there was something about, even if there was a, somebody coming to, you would invite them into your tent in the Bedouin Bedouin culture, Eastern Arabian culture, it's even if you have strangers, you love to have strangers come. You entertain. There was something about Eastern culture that wanted, that wanted to eat together, to be together. It was, a, it was almost a sacred uh, right. It was something powerful about community, hospitality, unity, family. And they believed that strangers would be sent by God. Amazing, when you read now the account with Abraham and the, the angels that came, it, it brings new light into the, the culture and the background of the day. It almost became a sacred duty. Hospitality, you know, my home is your home. In, in, in Eastern culture, if, even if you were a stranger, my home is your home. I'm half Italian and in my family, my uncle said, in Italian, my casa, your casa. One of my uncles he would say, you come have mangiare, you eat, eat, eat at my house. We spent a lot of time eating, didn't we, in Italy, Helen? Always been invited to come. To, and uh, Mediterranean culture is, is, is pretty similar to Eastern culture, which is you eat together. And you, it's not just for eating, being together, talking politics, talking football, Roma and all the teams that they support, and life, a faith. Being, family, children, everything. It was, it was just being. It was being. Eating and being. And this is something that is in, uh, still in to a degree in Western sort of Mediterranean culture. being pulled in. You might come from a culture that you understand that still is in the East to this day. But um, in Jesus' culture and in Jesus' mindset, there is this understanding of what it is to have a meal together. And you say, what are you on about? Well, we'll go somewhere with this. Just hang in there with me. This is the backdrop and the uh, culture of the day that sets this letter. 
And so when they had the communion, what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, this is the backdrop to the communion. And you'll see some of the problems that they were having with their communion. And it will give uh, understanding on the way in which we take communion today and maybe shed some new light. So there's sort of the background to the Eastern mindset. Um, This idea of unity, community, family, what's mine is yours, together, life. Um, not you know individualistic, but in being in, not individualistic, but being independent, but yet interconnected. And there's something about this idea of being an individual, but an in, being independent and made in the, as an individual, named in the image of God, but also being interconnected and interdependent. This is why in Eastern culture you didn't want to eat alone; you wanted to be and share with everyone around you. Now, add to that the background before we can actually deal with the letter that Paul was writing, because the, Paul was writing with this type of cultural background, okay? Bearing in mind our faith comes out of this type of cultural background, uh, and that's something very important for us, because uh, it has repercussions and um, principles for us today uh, that maybe we've moved a little away from in our 21st century Western uh, individualistic culture. And the second thing that I would want to set the scene is the idea of Passover, the Passover meal. The, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper um, is birthed out of the Eastern background and the Eastern culture, but is, is founded on something called the Passover or the Passover meal. You'll find in the book of Exodus, we won't have time to unpack it, but if you, if you want to write down Exodus chapter 12 will be the bit of the backdrop to some of the things that Jesus says when Paul says, I received from the Lord on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he took the cup. Jesus, that, what he's referring to when Paul speaks in Corinthians, he's speaking about on the night that he was betrayed, they were taking Passover meal. They were celebrating Passover, Jesus was on that day. Passover, if you um, want to just note it, but in Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 12, the Jewish people were given something called the Passover meal. And this is, comes out of uh, Exodus 12, whereby the Israelite people were in Egyptian slavery. And the, if you can recall, um, the Pharaoh or the, link, the king of the day would not let the Egyptian people go, be released from slavery. And God had raised up a man called Moses and said, you will lead my people to freedom. And in going to Pharaoh, um, Moses had um, a trial and a difficulty as the Pharaoh became harder and harder and said, you will not go. Oh, and, and, and Moses said, God says, let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart, his heart became hardened. And, and what ultimately happened was that God said there will be a night and on that night an angel of death an avenging angel a destroying angel will come to the nation of Egypt and the firstborn of the nation will be taken but this is what the Lord said he said to those who is chosen to the people he said if you take a lamb a one-year-old spotless lamb or goat for that matter and slay it. Choose one that is um, appropriate for the size of your family. You need to get into families. You need to get into your homes. Choose a lamb that is appropriate for the size of your family because you're going to slay this and eat this as well and have a meal together. And what's going to happen is that when you slay this spotless um, a one-year-old lamb, you are to slaughter it. You are to put the blood over the door, the doorposts of your home. 
And uh, when the angel of, the avenging angel of death comes, will see the blood and will pass over your home and you will live. But where the angel comes to a home and does not see the blood, they will take the firstborn. And hence the term Passover came. What, and what happened was that the, an angel of death came to Egypt that night. And on those homes where they'd slaughtered a spotless lamb, then uh, they placed the blood over the lintels of the door of that home. The angel of death passed over that family. But to those homes where the blood was not on the doorposts, their firstborn were taken. And so on that night, they said, so God said, you are to slaughter the lamb, put the blood on the lintels of the door, roast the lamb and eat it completely. Take bread, cook bread, but bread that is unleavened so that you don't have to wait for it to rise, in other words, because this will be a night where you'll be passed over and you're going to be freed. So this, you'll have to get, get ready quickly. You're going to have to eat this quickly. It's a faith-type meal because this is a meal in preparation for being released, freed from death and freed from slavery. So they took unleavened bread so it didn't have to wait to rise and then take bitter herbs as well to remind, to say that you're being released from slavery because slavery was a, a terrible thing. And you're to put your cloak on, tuck it in, get your boots ready and staff because on that, and get ready because you're going to be released and delivered. That was called the Passover. And this was to be given, and so they, the, the, as the story goes, the, the account goes, the angel of death came where the blood was upon the lintels of the door of those homes. The angel passed over and they were free, they were saved from death. With that, the firstborn of the nation were all um, destroyed. Uh, Pharaoh released and allowed the Israelites to move into freedom. Passover. And that would be over a thousand years before Christ. And from then on, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and to this day celebrate what they call Passover. Jesus celebrated that same Passover. And on the night that he was betrayed... This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop to our communion. This is why I'm sharing this. Eastern culture, the Passover meal. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was taking that Passover. So Jesus then celebrates on one while he was alive the Passover with his disciples. And we read in the Gospels, he, a good young man from a, a Jewish background, he celebrates the same Passover, remembering the deliverance of God. And on the night that he was betrayed, he did a radical and amazing thing that was to change the world and amaze the disciples. And was it quite incredible? As he took the bread, he said, this is my body. They were having a meal, a major meal together. This is my body. He changed the emphasis of the Passover forever. This is my body broken for you. When he took the cup and they were drinking wine together, they were taking the bitter herbs too. When he took the cup and took the wine, he said, and this had been read, he said, this is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. He was basically saying this, I am the lamb to be slain. For the world, so that the angel of death will pass over all mankind. It's amazing. It was radical. It was incredible. They all fell off their seats. Some of them didn't really realize and understand. And so Jesus says, I am, he was saying, I am the Passover lamb. It's by my blood and by my body. And this was proper bread, big loaves, we'd be ripping it apart. That's what's going to happen to me. 
And there have been goblets of wine. And been, this is being poured out as it, you know, the, the noise that it makes when it's poured out into a cup. My blood's going to be poured out for you. He demonstrated this. And um, slain for the sins of the world. Now, we, the church, and at Corinth, they were taking not the Passover, but the Lord's Supper. The early church calls it the agape meal. Well, the communion. The Lord's Supper. And uh, we don't use the term Passover because now Jesus is our Passover lamb. Okay? And uh, they were taking the, the Lord's Supper. And so Paul has to speak to the early church, uh, the Corinthian church, because there were some things happening as they took this meal together. And so you and I today celebrate the communion or the Lord's Supper or the agape meal. But it's changed somewhat. And we need to sort of try and get our hearts back to the spirit and emphasis of what the communion meal is truly and really all about. So Jesus practiced Passover. He then shared a revelation that he is the Passover lamb. When he died and rose again, he leaves us, a set, a, it's not the Passover meal, we call it the Lord's Supper. And our communion replaces, as it were, for us the, he is celebrating the lamb that was slain for the world. So the Lord's Supper, the meal at Corinth. Now at Corinth, what we believe, and most Bible scholars believe, is this. That the church in Corinth was probably about 40 to 60 people in size. And it probably met in a house, because at that time, the early church didn't have church buildings. You know, sort of 40 years after Jesus, something like this. This would have been something, say, 40 years after Jesus Death and resurrection now, 30 years, something like that maybe. And so they didn't have a lot of buildings at that time, so they would have met in houses. It would have been a big house, quite a big house. There might have been a wealthy person. There were a mixture, a diverse mixture of people converted at Corinth. It was a diverse city. The wealthy, the poor, the slave, the free, the high-born, the low-born, merchants, all sorts, men, women, young, households, individuals. There was a right mixture in the Oriental uh, East and in the, uh, the sort of um, the eclectic sort of city that uh, Corinth was. And uh, it wasn't a huge group of people. And when they sat down, they sat down to a meal. You know, when we sit down to communion, as the church got bigger, the meal became more symbolic. But if we go back... To the earliest days of the meal, it was a meal. Passover was a meal. Passover today is still a meal. Communion was a, would have been a meal. We know it would have been a meal because it says that some of you um, are getting full and some of you are getting drunk. There would have been a lot of food. It would have been a meal that they took. But as the church, when the church was smaller, it was more house-based, it was probably more based around the meal the culture of the day, the Passover background. I've took a long time to set that. And the size of the group. The bigger the church got, the more difficult it became to have a, a, a cozy meal, as it were. It be, and it became more of a symbolic meal. So now you have a piece of bread and a cup of juice. It's become more symbolic of the Passover type of meal. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong or bad, but I'm just stating it's we've moved to become more symbolic, but to try and realize why and what's it really all about. So Paul then says to them, you know, um, 
There's the problem at Corinth was that they weren't waiting for one another at the mealtime. Some were tucking in and ripping off large pieces for themselves and leaving little crumbs for others. Some were drinking large amounts and not leaving quite as much for others. It was a, quite a, a great meal. And you can imagine 40, 50, 60 people, children, they were all there. They were going to be praying together. This was their love, the love meal. And the love meal become a scattering meal. And Paul had to speak into this. And he, this is what he's talking about. And so at Corinth, when we look at the text, moving on then. The problem with Corinth was this. He says uh, in verses 17 to 22, he says, Following the directors, I have uh, no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt you have uh, to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. This is a substantial meal. It was a substantial meal. And so there was this sort of sense of division. The place, the the actual, this is amazing. The place of unity. We call it communion. Communion is about having communion or relationship with God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and each other. That's what is amazing. We call it the communion. And the place of communion, the place of fellowship, the place of community, in other words, celebrating being in the family of God, being in communion with God, in communion with Jesus Christ. Paul says the very place of family, the very place of being united with God, united with Christ, united with the Holy Spirit, dare I even say united in the body with one another. He says the very place where we have this communion meal, the agape meal, the Lord's Supper, this communion or fellowship with one another, he says, I find that you are divided. In actual fact, it should have been the place of the celebration of family participation, being involved with and in each other. And he says, you are not, you are divided because some are dipping in and some are being forced back and not waiting for one another in the supper meal. Now, interestingly, the word for division there is a, word, a Greek word, schisma, which we get our word schism. It's a particular word that's used there, schisma. And so when Paul speaks, he says, I notice that when you come together, there's schisma. In the place of communion with the Holy Spirit, there is schisma with one another. Um, to a schism, Oxford Dictionary says this about the word schism. It's a division into opposing groups because of a difference in belief or opinion, says the Oxford English Dictionary. A division into opposing groups because of a difference in belief or opinion. And it says this then, which I think is rather sad, especially in religious bodies. <laughs> That's in the Oxford English Dictionary, which I thought was a bit of a sad thing to read. The word schisma literally means to rend. You know when it says they rent their garments? It says the temple curtains were rent, the veil was rent, ripped apart. It literally means to rip apart by difference of opinion. Wow. It says there is schisma. Far from it there being communion, he says in the place of communion, 
of that meeting with God, there is a ripping apart of, because of a difference of attitude, heart, and opinion. Now, it's interesting. He says, but he said it's not wrong to be different. You notice that in the text. And I would say this. It's not wrong to be different because the Corinthian church had different people from different walks of life. He wasn't saying, oh, we must not have schisma. We mustn't have difference. It's, we've all got to be exactly the same. You've got to look the same, dress the same, think the same, walk the same, uh, think the same, and act the same. That would be robotic. He's not saying that. In factual fact, he's not saying that. He goes on to say in the text, you know, of course there is difference, and so there should be. There's diversity. I suppose it's this age-old difficulty in balancing unity and diversity in the body of Christ. We are diverse, and so we celebrate our diversity, our different backgrounds, our different ideas, our different visions, our different opinions on life, our different opinions even on theological things. We celebrate that, and that's good. And Paul says that's okay to celebrate that, but he says it's when you let schisma come in. And it's what is different, we celebrate. But when you have an opinion that allows a wedge, and schisma is a wedge that brings difference and causes division. Schisma is the wedge that comes in between difference. There's a wedge that brings division. You know, and uh, schisma is a difference of opinion that ultimately will rip apart. And Paul says, this is what came in. So it's not saying that you should all be exactly the same and think the same and totally have to agree the same. Have you heard it when people say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. That's two people coming together, being Christians and saying, we will not allow schisma to get between us. We'll agree to disagree. We can still shake. We'll still see each other tomorrow. Schisma rips apart. Forgiveness helps us agree. And this is what Paul is getting in the communion. Now, the communion, remembering, is celebrating the body of Christ, being united to Christ, being united to God, being united to each other. And he says, in the midst of that unity is schisma. And this, what Paul says, is so dangerous. He, he even says, some of you are falling sick and are weak because of this sense of schisma. And this is why he talks about this in such um, terms. Now, wanting to move along swiftly. So, how do we deal with our hearts and lives? Because it, Paul says in the text, he, he says uh, this. I hear that when you come together in the church, there is, there is schisma, there is divisions among you. And for some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. You know, differences, it's, it's, it, it's okay. He's not saying you have to be exactly the same. You notice that there? But it's the schisma element, the wedge that is allowed to come between us. You only have to have a little crack, don't you? And you get a wedge and you knock a wedge into a crack to force it apart. And it's that hardening of opinion. It's that hardening of opinion that, that causes schisma. And throughout church history, that's been the same. And it was happening at Corinth. And there's nothing new under the sun. And this is what he's speaking into. It took a bit of time to get there. But how sad that is that this is occurring at the place that there should be, not schisma, but unity. 
Well, you say to yourself, how on earth are you going to get that then? How's that going to happen? Because it just doesn't work out in practice. If the Oxford Dictionary has said that schism is especially in religious bodies, they, they, you know, it just doesn't work out, does it then? Because they've noticed throughout church history and throughout religious organisations, there's this faction, that faction, that group and that group. It's happening in life. How on earth then are we going to deal with schisma? Well, the simple remedy to dealing with schisma is, what does it say? There's a help in the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, there are three things that we can do that will help us deal with our hearts. And uh, they're in the text. The three things are, first of all, remember. Secondly, repent. Thirdly, receive. And it's all based around the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to everything. You know, it's like Sunday school, isn't it? When you ask a question in Sunday school and the child puts a hand up, answer, Jesus. And you ask him, what, you know, what have you had for dinner uh, today? It'll, be, it'll almost be Jesus is everything. Because in Sunday school, you're taught that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. It's, you know, you taught that in Sunday school, like, yeah, and we laugh. And, but I really want to say, and this is the simple, simplistic truth. In the communion, Jesus is the answer. That's why we take the communion. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the unifying person. We're in communion with Jesus Christ. And then each other. Now, so, um, if you look at verse 24. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed uh, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which... Uh, is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we come, we gather around the person of Jesus Christ. We remember, it's to bring to living memory. The memory isn't a memorial of just death and past. Oh, isn't that terrible? But we bring to living memory. We enact, it's living because Jesus is now alive forevermore. So the word remember there means bring to living memory. The power, resurrection, presence, personality, the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the wonderful sense of the presence of Jesus Christ. It's not a fading memorial memory of dead and buried and that's it. But he's alive forevermore and we bring to living memory the sense of power and experience today. And so the first thing that we do is we remember. The second thing that we do is, um, it says in verse 27, look at this. Um, for I received you, uh, what you eat. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of, 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 of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks the cup. Repent. When you come, you re- re- we remember, but the thac- second area is we, we, we come with a, a repentant heart. It's an attitude, a repentant heart. How do you deal with opinion, schisma, How do I deal with that? When I come to the communion, I practically engage. I remember all that Jesus has done for me and all of the forgiveness that is available and the grace that is there for me right now. You know, I need Jesus. I'm not perfect. You need Jesus. You're not perfect. I need Jesus because I don't perfectly understand everything about the kingdom of God. The the ideas that I have and the doctrine that I do understand is only partial. 
All of us only know partially and understand partially. That's why we need Jesus Christ. I need his forgiveness because I'm just not perfect. I'm not good all the time. I'm not good half the time. I'm probably not even good part of the time. So we need Jesus so much. And that's why he says, remember. It's not remember as in, I take me a bit of bread. Oh, it's a nice morning. I bring to living memory, I need you, Lord. The remembrance is, I need you so much. My opinions. Look, my understanding of the doctrine is only that much. You get these people that will say, I know everything. They'll be on the God channel. I'm sorry. Here I go again. I'll get off that. I shall get off that hobby horse. Forgive me. But we just don't know, do we? You know, I'm not saying you let any opinion go. But hey, it's a great leveler. You know, Lord. It's a great leveler. And that's why the... And repent. Repentance is this. I need you so much today. That's how we we come. When we come to him, we deal with schisma. Schisma is in my old nature. It's something that gets to my bones. It gets to me. Oh, you're getting to me now. You know when you, you know that aspect. And, and, but, but I need you. I need grace. I need forgiveness. Because you're perfect. I'm not. You're amazing. I'm not. You're all forgiving. I'm not. You've got amazing grace. I just want to live in that and give it away. And I need you. And I need your help so much. And this is why Paul says, this will deal with schisma. Remember. Repent. So he says, when he says examine yourself, it means bring Bring all that you are before me and receive all of that God is right now. Receive, that's the final one. Receive all of that grace, forgiveness. It's a great leveler. We all need that equally, don't we? It's a great leveler. It deals with, it stops me. I won't talk about you, getting on my high horse. It will stop me getting on my high horse. Remembrance, repentance, receive as we take the communion together. And it is communion. Communion, it's, we call it communion. Communion is deep fellowship with. To be in communion with. You might have friends on Facebook, but you're not in communion with them. Friends, face to face, in your face, heart to heart. Iron sharpening iron. Isn't that a lovely scripture? Oh, we all, oh, I love that one. But it sparks, doesn't it? It grates, it gets. It. And so the communion allows us, it's an opportunity to just bathe, forgive, be forgiven. Be really, and it gets rid of that wedge. It gets rid of that wedge naturally. I, you know, the amazing thing is I don't have to strive and struggle God knows, he cares, he loves. He's given us this wonderful opportunity to take the communion together. So stay connected in fellowship. You know, an orchestra has to tune in. I'm sure Mick Hewitt could tell me a lot about pianos. Uh, You know, making pianos, tuning pianos, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, uh, for a piano, um, you would tune in. In um, the Hebrides, the islands and islands, they'd have a presenter. And the presenter, they don't have, well, they didn't have musicians as such. They have a tuning fork. And they'd knock it and you put it on the table and they go, mm-hmm, and that would start everybody off. Mm-hmm, and off they go singing the psalm or whatever they would sing. They'd tune in to a standard. An orchestra 
They were all tuning up, but they're tuning into a stand. Today, you know, we'll see Tim and the guys, and they might have one of these electronic tuners that you tune the strings into to the, to the standard, to the pitch C sharp. I don't know what it is. You can just say, I haven't got a clue, haven't you? But there is this idea of tuning in. And in the communion, when we remember, when we repent, we're coming to a conclusion now. When we receive, we take the communion, we rem- and we do those things that Paul said. We're, as it were, tuning in. For- Forgive the metaphor to Jesus Christ, the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. It's not Adrian Mancini. It's not another teaching. It's not your and me, but Jesus Christ. And in the communion, when we repent, when we renounce, when we receive, we're tuning in. That's how we can deal with schisma. Because our eyes are off of each other and onto him. And as I then bring my life and you and you and you and you and you and you. We're all bringing our lives in the communion to Jesus. He does an amazing thing. His grace is special and sufficient for you, for you, for you, for you, and even me in the particular way that deals with all that's going on in me and that gets to me. And in in repentance and receiving and giving forgiveness, it all seems to just unity and diversity. Amazing. As we wind up and conclude this morning then, communion is a prophetic embodiment. He says, you proclaim till I come. It's prophetic. It's a proclamation to principalities and powers that Jesus Christ is the answer to the universe, to the world, and that he's coming back again. And that we are forgiven. We're, in, we're just subjects, objects, people, whatever you want to call it, of grace. And it declares it to the universe till he comes back again and everything will be then perfect. It's a prophetic declaration, but it's also a prophetic embodiment. We have communion. We have union. We are community. We become and move, begin to move in unity. It's an, an it acts out. It's an enactment of communion with God and with each other. So how can we respond as we finish then? A couple of things in practical conclusion. When we take communion together, symbolic though the meal may be, and what we've done on, say, Good Friday, we'll have a breakfast. Do you know why we do? I like the Good Friday breakfast, because it's a bit of a meal. And then we take communion together. And I've got a feeling it's a bit how early church would have done it. Maybe not with bacon cobs or whatever it is that we have. And a latte or whatever it is. No, it wouldn't have been bacon cobs. (laughs) That would have been a schism, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? <laughs> but there's something about having a meal. But although it's symbolic, perhaps, it's the spirit that we take it in and what it's really all about that comes back to mind this morning. So when we take communion, remember, repent, receive. That would deal with schisma. Second thing. Let's celebrate our diversity. We are different. We've got different opinions, different ideas. I say fantastic. Maybe I'm misunderstood. When I speak of unify, it doesn't mean to say we all have to have exactly the same chip off the old block and you can't. We celebrate our difference of opinion. It's okay to have another opinion, but don't let it become schisma. That's all Paul says. Don't allow it to become a stumbling block in our hearts. And we do that through the communion. We do it through remember, repent, receive. Let's 
Let's celebrate our diversity and commune with Jesus. Let's stop the wedge of schisma, difference of opinion that leads to division. So strong that leads to division as we come together. Thirdly, as individuals, we're interdependent. Remember this, we are individuals. But we live in the 21st century, it's quite an individualistic culture. My group. My thing, my gang, my idea, which is true. We are individuals, but we're also interdependent and interconnected. There's something about the common good and being united together. So I'm an individual, but we are. We who are many are one. That's why the body broken is he became broken so that we could be whole, one. We who are many in the communion become one, a body with Christ, but also with each other. With each other also. So, what I would say is make the most of those times that we can come together. My plea with you and for me and for us is make the very most of those moments when we do come together. Like now. Like the communion. Like when we do something. Won't we be doing something soon? On Jubilee Sunday, in a few weeks time, we're going to have meal together Hey, we can have a meal with a great big difference. Think of the spirit and coming together. Wow. Let's make the most of those times. In other words, celebrate our diversity. Celebrate our circles of friends, our own individuality, and all that we do throughout the week. That's wonderful. But then when we can come together, let's make the most of those opportunities as well. That's what I would say. Something that we've, um, something to help with, with that, that we want to encourage. It already goes on in our church. So I'm not, you know, teaching us to suck eggs, as it were. I realize this does go on. But on the back of what I've said about this idea of meal, celebration, together, the heart, um, we'd love you, this goes on and it's happening, people inviting each other for meals, but love you to take away one of these or some of these. Come dine with me. You know the TV program, Come Dine With Me. We, just, we don't want you to go around somebody's house and then start marking them on, on their meal. Right. It's not that. We're not wanting that. We don't want you to do that. But the spirit of dining together, okay, not marking the meal. We'd love you. It already goes on, and I know it's happening, and I, I, I hear about it all the time. People having breakfast together, going out for coffee together. It happens across the church. But what we'd love you to do is do something together. We're not going to prescribe when, where, or how. All we've produced is a come dine with me, and on, it, on the back it's got building friendship, meeting over a meal, live, love, laugh. And there's a point there where you can write on the back, you're invited at your house and you're on the day. And you can set the day, you can invite who you like, when you like, at what time you like, and don't have to tell anyone you like, but just those. <laughs> so what I want you to do is when you go this morning, take one of these and let's celebrate our diversity and our difference through a meal. And meal together. And meal with each other. Take one of those. Let's pray together. Bless you. You've been wonderful. You're a great church. And I appreciate your time. Heavenly Father, we just say thank you so much that you have paved the way. The first meal, Adam and Eve ate an apple. They fell from grace. The second meal, you delivered a nation. The third meal... At the Passover, 
Jesus revealed he was a Lamb of God to take away the sins of the whole world. The fourth meal, it's our communion. Wow. Freedom. Forgiveness. The fifth and final meal, the supper with the Lamb, the final day of the banquet, when we are invited to dwell with you forevermore when you return again. Lord Jesus, everything is around a meal. Thank you. Everything, the universe, our salvation is based around. We lost it through a meal. We now regain it through the meal. We say thank you, Lord. It brings new revelation to our hearts and minds. We celebrate the fact that we are so different and have so many different ideas, and that's okay and it's good. But we celebrate the fact that that individuality and difference is brought together in unity through your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus Christ. So for that, we say thank you. We give our lives to you afresh, worship and honor you with a desire to live for you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.